the sort of person who listens to this show, you know that the future of American antitrust policy is up for grabs. On the one side are the populists or neo-Brandeisians, although they're arguably revanchists seeking to return antitrust to a more active socio-political or structuralist approach, they have the energy of a fresh, young, revolutionary movement. On the other side are the defenders of the consumer welfare standard and more broadly, a light touch Chicago school approach. This remains the governing regime and it's dominant in the courts, but I think it's fair to say that there is an enthusiasm gap that is advantaging the advocates of the new populism over the defenders of the status quo. One thing I really like about our guest today is that he's bringing some freshness and some sparkle to the side that's skeptical of big is bad antitrust policy. He wants to make sure that the importance of innovation is not overlooked in debates about antitrust, which strikes me as a uh, very worthy goal. I think he might even argue he's proposing a third way for antitrust, and I'll be interested to see if that's right and to probe that claim a bit. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. The aforementioned guest is Aurelian Portois. He is the Director of Antitrust and Innovation Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Aurelian is also Director of ITIF's Schumpeter Project. That is, of course, Joseph Schumpeter being referred to. And uh, I hope we can talk about him and his work some today as well. Also joining us is Tech Freedom's own Andy Young. The last time we had him on the show, he was Andy the law clerk. He's gone pro and is now a legal fellow here. So congratulations on that, Andy. Um, Aurelian, hello. Hello, thank it's, you for having me. It's so good to have you. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I expect you have a general introductory spiel on why innovation is important and how antitrust policy can promote it. And I, I do want to hear that. But if you're up for it, I'd really like to hear you start off with some discussion of how European antitrust policy is not innovation centric, uh, because I think that might actually be a little more concrete and vivid to see what happens when uh, antitrust policy goes wrong. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, very important to center this debate around innovation. And in one word, why uh, competition and antitrust policy uh, should look at innovation as a core yeah, objective. It's just that uh, firms compete, and most of the time, and we see it increasingly, they compete through innovation. The way they compete is by innovating even more so they can disrupt their competitors. And antitrust enforcers need to take into consideration this relationship between competition and innovation and not only have uh, these uh, very short-term focus on making a, a market as perfect as it is now and not looking at the process of innovation, the process of uh, competition, or as Schumpeter will say, the process of creative destruction where firms get out of the market, not because of monopolistic practice or exclusionary practice, but sometimes just because they are less efficient and because the markets reward uh, efficiency uh, most of the time. So the relationship between innovation and, and competition has been perhaps too overlooked uh, for, the, for the last years and for the last 
decades, and we live in a world of digital innovation, of disruptions, and it would be a pity, if not very costly, as regulatory errors, uh, to disregard this process of innovation when we think about competition. And what we see in the US uh, is this great, large uh, inspiration from European competition enforcement. That is uh, ironical because for many years, many decades, it was precisely the reverse, right? The way uh, US antitrust has been modernized, has been uh, kind of objectivized or rationalized uh, as inspired European antitrust uh, enforcement policy and European uh, officials. That's what we call, we used to call the more economic approach in European corruption policy, where we understood that legalistic, formalistic rules just don't fit with a more economic analysis of competition policy. And now what we see is the reverse. The Europeans with their less economic and more perhaps more formalistic approach inspire these, this new movement in, in, in the US, uh, which as you, as you rightly said, is um, personified by some antitrust populists and by the uh, neo-Brandisians. And so the question is why this is wrong and why uh, it is potentially very costly uh, for uh, American economy and for American regulations to get inspiration from European um, way of thinking. Well, very quickly, I can say that the, the way Europeans will think about competition is very much inspired by the German way of thinking that what we describe as auto liberalism. This, this, this school of thought, which emerged uh, right after the Second World War, is basically focusing on the economic freedom of competitors to compete on the market. And, and this freedom, um, sometimes and very oftentimes, um, resemble those kind of entitlements. The competitors are entitled to compete on the market, and so they can be protected from potentially disruptive companies. And this kind of entitlement creates uh, protection of competitors rather than protection of, of competition. Uh, and that is very, very uh, problematic in a sense that if you want to have um, a protection, the protection of, of competitors in the market, that will lead to regulate a number of large companies, a number of potentially disruptive uh, companies, essentially as public uh, facilities. And uh, that will very much distort innovation, and that will very much distort uh, the incentive to compete through innovation. So it's very important to understand that whether we see the process of competition as rewarding efficiency and rewarding innovation, or we see the process of competition where everybody is entitled to compete on the market, sometimes irrespectively of their economic merits, and most of the time uh, because of potentially powerful lawsuits and powerful uh, regulatory capture. And that is very dangerous in the sense that um, the economics uh, of uh, the digital regulations, that we, the digital economy that we see is not about the number of players in the market that should be rewarded. It's also about the economies of scale, the network effect. And that may naturally and positively 
lead to some concentration in the market. Um, and so this opposition between the natural functioning of the market where network effect, scale economies work, and the uh, European way of looking at those markets as very much uh, in, well, we need to deconcentrate those markets are very opposite. And it's very, uh, it's an irony that the neo-Brandesians and antitrust populists in the US take inspirations from the European way of looking at things in order to completely revamp antitrust rules and antitrust enforcement. So I feel like there's sort of two different cases uh, to be made here and that I'm, that I'm hearing in your, your excellent response. You know, on the one hand, uh, there's the easy thing to argue against, which is that it's a fallacy to think an, an, a market should be this atomistic sort mm. of uh, like like the Chicago corn market, where there's a mm. bunch of sellers and there's a lot of price competition, and that we shouldn't really see markets that way anymore, um, except in rare instances, maybe with like commodity goods. And the reason that the market has moved away from that, I think, if once you explain, it's pretty intuitive. That is the modern world. Uh, the advance of technology, the example I always like to give is if uh, just use like cows in the 19th century, you invent a railroad, you can ship a uh, product farther, then you invent refrigeration and that improves. Right. So over time, uh, the competition becomes over a larger scale and you get more and more um, advantages from economies of scale and more ability for one competitor to, to be the most efficient and offer the lowest price because your beef doesn't have to come from within, you know, a 20 mile radius to be fresh. Mm -hmm. And that's a very simple process. You see how yeah. over time competition might um, diminish at a national level and yet rise in a local level. You're, there's more and more availability of competitors in your individual market, even though there's fewer and fewer competitors nationally. Mm -hmm. Now, the harder case maybe to be made is as that happens and it grows and grows and grows, and eventually you get these uh, economies of scale and these network effects where you know, you're not competing really anymore within a market, you're competing for the market. Right. And then you have a winner. Uh, who gets dominance. It's, it's a little bit like the Peter Thiel zero to one, you know, you want to get that big moat. Okay, now that seems like the harder case of saying that's okay and we should be comfortable with that. Um, and people raise concerns of, okay, once that's happened, once you have a winner, should, should we be concerned? Should we break up that company at a certain point? Is there, does there come a point where okay, you've gotten enough you know, profit from your innovation and now you're just squatting and blocking further innovators. You know, what do you say to that concern? I mean, that's, that's a very good point and very interesting point because the process of competition, uh, even in terms of price, may lead to one winner. There might be instances where there might be very few winners or very few, but the main questions for the competitive rivalry that we want to ensure is the barriers to entry. We want to make sure that this big player, whatever winner can be, can be disrupted, can itself be disrupted. And that is very much the process. The fact that a company grown big won the competition, that's great, but these small victory needs to be transitory and needs to be kind of open for future disruptions. And most of the time, what we see is that when we have these large companies, because they are considered 
as monopolies, wrongly considered as monopoly, they got regulated. And it's the regulation that creates the barriers to entry because these regulations precisely regulate those large companies as uh, essential facilities, as public utilities. And the very fact that you regulate those companies as public utilities will entrench their so-called monopolistic power. And so that's why we don't need to break this company up or to regulate them as public utilities, because that will precisely undermine the process of competition, even uh, let alone the merits uh, of competition and the fact that we sanction, we punish um, uh, innovations and we punish uh, competition. But, so the, the, the risks for the regulators uh, by to intervene too early and to regulate those companies as uh, essential facilities is to create by um, these regulations the very uh, barriers to entry that are the obstacles to, uh, to, to, comp to the process of competition. And we see that those days. Uh, we see that in Europe uh, and we see that in the US. Just for example, take the example of in the EU, the Digital Market Act that wants to regulate gatekeepers. But by regulating gatekeepers, you not only it, it's, it's wrong because uh, that will distort the process of innovation and, and competition, but you further entrench the power of those companies in the sense that they become further insulated from competition. So not only it's wrong in terms of innovation and competition, but also it distorts the process of competition by creating this very prohibitively costly barriers to entry. And this essence of the Digital Market Act that is proposed and that is going to be adopted, I think, next spring, um, is exactly the model upon which uh, the House antitrust bills are designed. And so we see exactly the same, uh, the same, uh, uh, the same framework. What is this framework? Well, what I consider to be a very unfair level playing field, because within the market, you discriminate between different companies and you regulate the companies differently according to the size, according to their um, to their to their pure size, irrespective of, the, of their merits. So companies that will compete against one another will have completely different regulatory framework, regulatory obligations, and prohibitions. And that is unfair in a sense that it doesn't. Um, reward or, or even punish uh, innovative uh, conduct uh, on the market. And that is exactly what is against the process of, of, of disruption, of creative, de creative destructions. We want those uh, competitive uh, companies to, to win the market if they, if they want to win the market. It, but that victory needs to be transitory, needs to be um, challengeable uh, by the lowering of bias to entry, those bias to entry, which are most of the time created by regulations. And they will be uh, further um, bias to entry because of the Digital Market Act or the House antitrust bills that are about to be created. Andy, you want to go ahead? Yeah, um, Arulian, you recently wrote an article about the me-we moment in antitrust. And me-we strikes me as an example of one of those companies you're talking about that has adopted an, a European approach of saying, uh, protect me from Google. Uh, they're more innovative than us. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about MeWe as a company and a little bit about the article and how they're an example of this um, maybe entitled mindset. Right. And did you. you mean a Facebook? 
Uh, yeah, it's a uh, MeWe is the is the competing social network of uh, Facebook, uh, which claim to be ad free. Um, but whatever, is the, there's many social networks. Uh, even though we may claim that uh, Facebook is a monopoly, but we find a uh, competing social network every day. We often forget Google's attempt to create a social network. That's right, with <laughs> billions of dollars of investments and completely, uh, well, largely failed because they they discontinued uh, that. It means that it's not only money; it's not it's creativity. It means, I mean, there needs to be something else than just pure financial power. But anyway, on, on this MeWe uh, movement, it's very interesting because you see the use, the weaponization of antitrust by inefficient rivals or by rival, rivals that failed to reach the scale. Even this can be uh, challenged in the MeWe uh, question. Uh, and to use antitrust in order to stop, to lower innovation, to lower competition, not to reinvigorate antitrust or not to strengthen competition as you may you may most most of the time here no it's this soft version of competition uh it's basically it's soft competition rather than hard competition this aggressive uh very innovative uh competition that benefit consumers i mean consumers want companies to compete aggressively to compete aggressively for the price to compete aggressively for the product quality uh, that's what consumers want. They don't want a uh, soft uh, competition. They want hard competition. But the rivals, the inefficient rivals or less innovative rivals, don't want, of course, that that hard way of, of competing. And in that article, I mean, in, in, in MeWe, they asked the regulators to lower the pace of, of innovation from Facebook. Basically, they say, for example, oh, Facebook is a great social network, that's fine. But they're investing on artificial intelligence, on uh, virtual reality. We cannot do that. So please stop them from doing this. And that is, uh, I mean, it can be um, laughable. But the thing is, at the end of the day, it takes some roots and grasp in antitrust, uh, in the antitrust laws. And these claims uh, these uh, these uh, limitations may win in the court uh, at the end of the day uh, that is why it's so dangerous because there's one class of people that are left alone and not hurt and this class of people is of course the consumers the consumers i mean are not hurt in these kind of complaints where uh, these complaints may benefit inefficient rivals uh, for slowing down the pace of of uh, of, uh, of innovation also the me we uh, company say that facebook remunerates too well uh content creators just like everybody like you and i or some uh, journalists or influencers uh, the content creators are too well paid by facebook that is the claim of me we i mean if we if we follow down that path then why not remunerating less uh, content creators, which is precisely uh, those small independent businesses or those artists or those influencers. And because the MeWe doesn't have the financial ability to remunerate better those content creators, it wants the regulators to force this kind of price setting where you remunerate content creators at one level and there won't be a competition on the remuneration level that is less competition it's not more competition it's less competition and less competition for the most innovative company 
if antitrust laws are weaponized in that way, uh, then it's the, I mean, it's the softening, it's the distortion of competition, it's the distortion of the process of competition rather than the reinvigoration of uh, competition as the, the new um, neo-Brandesians now in power uh, may claim. It actually, it's also just, it's not really anything new. We saw it in uh, the 60s and the 70s with the idea that your prices could be you, you predatory pricing, your pricing right. so low that you uh, remove competition when in reality, that's incredibly hard to, yeah. to find. And it's actually incredibly rare. And, and all it really ended up doing was, you know, the, the antitrust action against IBM. It is, it is going to back prices. to those years. Yeah. And then even before that, I mean, this harkens all the way back to railroads arguing that they yeah. needed to be protected from ruinous competition. <laughs> um, so it, it uh, going back to what I kind of said at the outset, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not fresh and cool. It really is actually uh, brushing off old ideas that I would argue are kind of failed and, and giving them a new gloss. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very strong critic of the last 30 40 years of how antitrust enforcement has been has been carried out and what is what is ironical in that, in that sense is that the way antitrust enforcement has been carried out for the last decades precisely was to foster economic efficiency and not to uh, punish those innovative companies which also triggered the biggest wave of digital innovation and technological innovation in in, in the US so if now the US Take Europe, which has failed as a digital superpower uh, to emerge. If the US takes Europe as an inspiration, whereas the big tech companies and the large uh, uh, creation of digital innovation has taken place in the Silicon Valley, but also all throughout uh, the US, then it is precisely uh, aligning ourselves to uh, uh, some some way of producing less innovation. It's no, it's no coincidence that all this innovation has taken place in the US. Um, it's also because the laws and the regulations are interpreted in an economically efficient way. You, I mean, there's a real concern for economic efficiency and not to sanction economic efficiency. If we now take this uh, model of uh, uh, over regulation from um, Europeans, then that will lead to uh, potentially the same economic uh, consequences that we see in Europe, meaning sluggish economic growth and sluggish digital uh, innovation. So it's also it's not only in the microeconomic level where whether we uh, we reward some companies and it's also on the macroeconomic level. What about growth? What about productivity? And what about also competitiveness? These are issues that have been overlooked by antitrust and officials for so many years. When we look at um, what the neo-Brandesians uh, propose, they look at markets, uh, most of the time local markets in order to infer some monopolistic power. And they always look at national market at, at, at best. They never look at global competition. They never understand, they never look at international competition where it's not about monopolizing a market, even nationally. It's also these large company competing with foreign rivals. And if we disregard this process of competition with competition taking place globally, because we're talking about digital uh, companies, uh, then we completely uh, miss the point. 
Um, if we really want to consider Facebook as a monopoly, uh, then we really have to be completely blind in the existence of TikTok. Uh, we really have to force ourselves to disregard the reality of TikTok. Um, if we want to do that, and that's exactly what is uh, what is precisely, precisely uh, written in the FTC complaints against uh, Facebook, then it's, I mean, trying to make uh, antitrust laws uh, fitting some business uh, bi business fictions and not business realities, and that would be very uh, very damaging for for the economy. So one thing that is kind of uh, mysterious to me is, um, you know, what what creates innovation. So I have two pictures in my head, and, and one is sort of why did Silicon Valley succeed and you know, one story you could tell is it had the advantage of being kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, back when it started back in, in the old days where nobody was paying too much attention. So it wasn't terribly regulated. Maybe you could analogize it to like the early days of crypto recently, like areas where sort of the powers that be don't spot it until it's blossomed and nice, you know, good things have happened before there's any kind of backlash. Another image I have is like Bell Labs giant corporation that actually uses its dominance to get a nice kind of cushy profit margin and then spend that money on moonshot projects um, and create innovation that way, which I think Google does some with its like X labs. Um, when you talk about an innovation centric antitrust, do you have a vision of where antitrust comes from? Do you think one of those pictures is correct? Is it just sort of stay out of the way and see what happens or, or do you, I, yeah. I mean, do you have thoughts on where innovation really comes from, or is it kind of as mysterious as I said, and we don't really know, and we just want to stay out of the way? Uh, the answer is yes and no. Innovation is still mysterious. If you read so many thinkers about innovations, it's still something where there's serendipity, there's some mysterious, sometimes coincidental and, and uh, evidence, but also we know where innovation comes from. We start to understand where innovation comes from. It comes from, uh, it's at the core of capitalism. The way you look at innovation is basically the way you regulate or you want to look at capitalism. Why? Because at the core of innovation, I would say it's capital, both human capital and financial capital. At the core, if you want to have innovation, you want to invest so much on human capital and you just refer to Silicon Valley, it's no surprise that most of innovation took place next to the greatest universities. Because you need to have a lot of human capital, you need to have a lot of knowledge. There cannot be innovation outside universities, outside research centers, outside this kind of human capital cluster. So when we look at innovation, it's also in terms of cluster with human capital. And also financial capital. You need just venture capital. You need a lot of money. You need a lot of money in order to pump into these big ideas. Because what is the distinction between invention and innovation? That's what Alfred uh, Chandler has, has written about. You, have, you, may, you may be an inventor. It doesn't mean that you will be an innovator. The difference between in invention and innovations is the ability to turn an invention into a commercialized, financially viable product. You may have a lot of 
inventions, but they will never be marketable. What makes innovation going into the market is that at some point, there has been a lot of financial capital being put into some innovation inventions so that inventions turn into innovations. And these two legs, the human capital and financial capital, there's a third element that is very much needed for those two to create uh, innovation is accumulation. You need a lot, you need some scale, you need some scale and some time horizon. That's why when you talk about innovation, you cannot have innovation in the short term. And that's why antitrust enforcement needs to be long-term, dynamic antitrust. Because innovation only, will, I mean, will start with uh, lots of costs before potentially generating revenues. But most of the time, it does not re generate revenues. Most of the time, these are failures. Nine, I mean, most of the innovation efforts end up in failures. And it's only the 10th or the 20th efforts that will lead to innovation and that will lead to something that is marketable, that is commercially viable. And we need accumulation. What does it mean accumulation of human capital and financial capital? When it means that you need some time horizon, you need a lot of money, a lot of human efforts for a long period of time in order to potentially see innovation. And that is exactly what we see with the platform business model. A lot of startup entrepreneurs start their apps, start their platforms, and they don't make any money. And they keep pumping some, some money into those platforms for so many years so that they could potentially be profitable. For example, let's take the, the, the example of Amazon. Amazon didn't make any profit for the first 10 years of the existence. Same thing is with Google, same thing with Apple. You can take every large companies. They haven't made any profit for the first five, 10 years of their existence. So it means that in order to innovate, you need a lot of human capital, a lot of financial capital that accumulate for a number of years, and you need to be financially viable uh, during those years. But just to come back to antitrust, if the compass of antitrust officials is completely disconnected with the, the way entrepreneurs, innovators think, then there will be a huge disconnect between antitrust enforcement and the way innovation is, is created and the way uh, firms can effectively uh, compete. And that is the kind of disconnect that unfortunately we see, the lack of understanding by um, some radicals of the process of innovation and competition. Well, let me uh, try to put you on the spot a bit, uh, because I think you also try to distance yourself a little bit from the Chicago school. And I'll be curious to hear yeah. kind of you explain that, because um, you've just explained that we need, you know, how, how, what undergirds innovation. And I think your average sort of Chicago school economist would say, you know, I don't really have any problem with any of that. Like consumer welfare standard encompasses innovation as one factor that we want to promote. Um, so in terms of just concrete outcomes, would your critique of the Chicago School actually lead to even less antitrust enforcement because we need to have longer time horizons? Um, and isn't that a really hard case to make in our current climate? And, yeah. and how do you approach that? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. Uh, first, a couple of remarks. I think the 
contribution of the Chicago School to Antitrust has been enormous and it's very, very uh, useful and has contributed to modernize uh, US antitrust and the, the, the attempt by neo-Brandisians to disparage this contribution is, um, is both um, damaging and, and, and very, very uh, counterproductive uh, because it will go against economic efficiency. So our, I mean, the Schopenhauerian uh, perspective will try to build on what has been made by the Chicago, uh, Chicago School, not to undo what has been made. Um, so the, the way the consumer welfare standard may sometimes be too narrow and too uh, short-term uh, focused is that it precisely, it doesn't take into consideration the total welfare. Uh, there's all this discussion between the consumer surplus and the total surplus. Are we talking about the total surplus or are we talking about the consumer surplus? If we only focus on, on price, but also on innovation for the consumers, let's assume that consumer welfare standards also encompass non-price effect and innovation objectives. But we, if we only focus on the innovation immediately and in the short term, beneficial for consumers, we may uh, overlook the way that companies also need to build their dynamic capabilities so that sometimes a producer surplus increase may contribute to competition innovation. So, in that regard, some aspect of the competition policy could be reformed in a sense that we see, I mean, we should look at whether or not the companies build their dynamic capabilities in order to better compete and better innovate in the medium term, in the long term basis, rather than just also consumer benefits being price or non-price effect. Um, consumers are important, of course, if the uh, actions or the conduct of companies benefit consumers, that will um, warrant against uh, antitrust interventions. But to not benefit consumer benefits, uh, to not benefit uh, consumers in the short run, doesn't mean that the companies are also engaging into anti-monopolistic practice. So, when, so it's important to look at consumer benefits, but it's a start, we will say that it's a starting point of the analysis, it's not the end point of the analysis. It's a starting point. So if consumers benefit from those practices, then it means that these companies do not engage in monopolistic practices. But even if consumers do not benefit in, from those practices or from these engaged capability buildings in the short term, it doesn't mean that the companies are not trying to innovate or by a different different ways. And we should also have this longer term. In most of the case, just to answer your question very uh, precisely about does it warrant less or more uh, uh, antitrust enforcement? In some case, it may warrant less antitrust enforcement because of the cost of false positive and, 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 and the error cost uh, framework where uh, antitrust enforcement uh, may disrupt the creation of dynamic capabilities in the long term. But on the, second, uh, on, on, on the other hand, the, the Chicago School and Robert Box and many offers have also um, advocated for per se rule of legality. And I think that is also very much, uh, I mean, contestable in a sense that we may have some broad framework 
which is not per se illegality, but neither should it be per se legality. What we would advocate is a very simple framework inspired by the common law uh, thinking, which is a generalized rule of reason. So where you can really think about the pro-competitive effect and the anti-competitive effect or um, of, of any practice, but without prejudgment. And in that case, I mean, in that case, in that perspective, I think it will strengthen the, um, the, uh, the, the innovation-centric approach to uh, antitrust because there won't be some discrete rules. There will be just a general rule, a rule of reason, with some principles uh, of, the, of the rule of law, of course, uh, which are applied to every conduct, right? For small and large companies, for innovative and non-innovative companies, they will all be under the same rule of reason without these contestable and controversial um, per se rules, which are applied discreetly, right? So that's just to answer your questions, yes and no. We, we may have less antitrust enforcement because of the long-term innovation considerations, which have been perhaps uh, overlooked and also a focus on the total uh, surplus, consumer surplus, but also the producer surplus, rather than just the, the consumer surplus. Uh, and, and perhaps more antitrust enforcement if the companies can really make a case of anti-competitive uh, uh, conduct in court. But this needs to be deci decided in court after evidence-based uh, analysis by judges we would be we would be subject to a generalized rule of reason and to of course rule of law principles not by um, regulatory authorities or by administrative agencies which may have uh, some discrete discrete uh, rules so that's the the, the longer term uh, approach and the more encompassing uh, approach that we will um, we will we will have um, so I'm curious if you have any criteria or metrics in mind to measure whether a company is driving innovation. So if it's not focused on, on price, what are some things courts could potentially look at to decide this company is driving forward innovation? So therefore, we want to say that they're behaving competitively. Yeah, uh, that's a very good uh, question. I mean, you know, John Hikes was saying that Monopoly also enjoyed a quiet life. Uh, so we, we, we don't want monopoly because they enjoy a quiet life. Well, to answer your question would be the, quite the opposite. Do we see the companies not enjoying the quiet life? Do we see those companies very pressurized in, in some sort of market conquest, trying to always conquer some new consumers? And one metric would be, of course, research and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, research expenditures, uh, the number of patents. How, how many patents have they filed? Are there real patents? Are there very useful patents? Um, in terms of copyright, in terms of protecting uh, and, and fostering creativity you know, by artists, you may think of platforms that foster the creativity of musicians, of uh, artists. Well, that will lead to greater uh, creation. Um, also, the, the, the share, I mean, very counterintuitively, um, the, share, the, the share of labor, right? The more the share of labor in a company reduced, the more cap, human capital is being increased, the more they result to some uh, digital and digital transformation, the more it is 
technologically uh, advanced, right? So that is also very, uh, very important. And the productivity, the productivity of labor, um, the uh, potential competition, like how, how likely entry by potential rivals it is uh, for this company to be uh, disrupted. Also, you may look at internal documents, uh, internal uh, business quarterly documents, where you see those companies uh, reflecting on their rivals and their potential rivals. You know, so I mean, there are many internal documents where you see those companies reacting, anticipating those rivals. I think those elements, those documents are very important and we shouldn't look at markets in abstract form. We should really look at how the entrepreneurs in these companies see the market. Are they innovating because they anticipate a new entry or are they secure and are they sure that the, the, the barriers to entry are so high that they can enjoy some monopolistic power? I think you can infer that from numerous uh, documents. And also that, yeah, the, the, the willingness of the company to spend more in, in, in order to create more dynamic uh, innovation by patents, innovations, and uh, different, different aspects. So it's just, it would be a, uh, some 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 empirical evidence uh, taken from the company's um, company's uh, uh, facts. Yeah. So absolutely, Aurelian, you're the head of the Schumpeter project, as we yeah. mentioned at the outset. And I've noticed that you you often appear on camera with a portrait of Schumpeter behind you. Um, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, could you just talk a bit about his views and? Um, and, and why you think he matters today to the point where it's worth, you know, naming a project after. Yeah, I think it's is uh, is an incredible figure, both personally and intellectually. Um, he has been so inspirational and is perhaps one of the greatest economists of the 20th century. Um, he just tried to understand to understand what is capitalism, why does it work, and very ironically, he agreed with Marx saying that the, the very rational, very logics that makes the capitals, capitalism working is its dynamics. It's always changing. And you cannot understand the efficiency of capitalism from this perfect competition framework. Try and say capitalism works because the allocative efficiency, because every transaction works well. No, he said that capitalism works because of the ability of competitors to disrupt the incumbents. And he understood that what makes growth in capitalism is innovation, what he called like a combination. It's funnily because a combination is precisely what has been uh, used in early antitrust, uh, antitrust laws to uh, label these kind of cartel and to break up uh, companies. So what he described as combination, which encompassed mergers, virtual integrations, all these uh, transactions, so that these uh, combinations are the drivers of innovation. The way the companies can transact, can make different uh, agreements, can integrate, can always adapt to new circumstances, uh, will make those companies uh, innovating. And these companies innovating will make the overall capitalism uh, growing and adjusting to different uh, circumstances. So 
he, he was the first, mainly the first, to put innovation as the heart of the growth of capitalism and uh, as uh, generating uh, productivity uh, gains. And he understood that most companies at some point, because of the capitalist, um, uh, capitalist dynamics, most companies will be disrupted. All these giants of back of his time will be disrupted by new innovators. Uh, he looked at small entrepreneurs and said like these small entrepreneurs may disrupt incumbents and grow larger. Um, and also he looked at also the, the, the large companies and he understood how these large companies have the ability to renew themselves through a process of innovation and research in order to keep uh, their innovation capabilities uh, at the greatest pace. So he understood that irrespectively of the size of the company, small or large, what matters for efficiency and for the success of capitalism is innovation. And what is very important with, with, with Schumpeter uh, thinking is that it didn't discriminate between small and large companies. It, it, it really considered that small companies are innovators, but most of the time, small companies lack the distribution facilities and the financial abilities to make those inventions becoming innovations. And on the other hand, he understood that the large company are not always the greatest innovators. And that's why they need in their uh, corporate uh, infrastructure to encompass small labs, small research, and to sometimes buy um, small companies so that they have these, 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 uh, these inventions from, from the startups into the uh, larger, um, uh, larger uh, distributional uh, facilities. And that's, that is very interesting from uh, Schumpeter because he understood as uh, first the idea that uh, innovation creates competition rather than the reverse. So Most of the time we think that competition leads to innovation. And he was one of the first to understand that innovation, the way companies innovate will precisely enable them to compete. And the, the, the failure of the companies to innovate will lead them to be outcompeted. Well, one thing I find interesting about him, you know, Schumpeter, I think it's fair to say, you know, he wasn't a quant. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, and yet he clearly had some profound insights about markets. So you were just talking about how uh, your sort of ideal antitrust, it, it would go in, you'd go into court and it'd be very evidence-based and there'd be quantitative analysis. Um, and yet that's not really what, what Schumpeter did. So um, what do you think the relationship really at the end of the day is between quantitative analysis and antitrust? And is it sort of like Schumpeter just sort of intuited something really important and, and data has later bore him out or, or was his method uh, uh, it was fundamentally uh, useful? I, I think as an economist, he was part of the German historical school and he, he, he really um, he really emphasized the need to have an historical analysis of how companies work. What does it mean historical? You can translate that as a long-term dynamic. Where do they come from? Where they are? And where did it go? And I think that analysis of like a, a storytelling, if you want, and understanding the companies, not just like 
they are big or they are like they are uh, in in today's market but why and how they reached that level and what drive them i think he had this 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 um this interest in understanding the historically uh the way companies work and how they grow and how they come from small to big and big to being disrupting and back to small or even uh, 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 in, in bankruptcy. Uh, so that is, I think, in terms of his method, that is what I will be uh, very inspired by, uh, to have this historical perspective of not looking at companies on the present day, but where do they come from? Where do they go? And and, and, and this innovation process, just to come back, you, you referred to, for example, uh, Amazon uh, price of, of, of low price. And I just refer that, yeah, if you look at Amazon, for example, they've spent like 10 years without any profits and they reneged on their profits and they really have, uh, they really wanted to keep uh, prices low. What now in our brand is in see as predatory pricing, well, you will see as a long-term view of capitalism, precisely not having this greatest profit in the short term, which would be precisely illustrative of a monopolistic practice, but more as a disruptor in terms of a long-term uh, view of generating product and generating con consumer benefits, even if, if it's at the cost of profit sacrificing. And, and, and it's very interesting to look at the long-term uh, dynamic. If you look at the long-term dynamic, then you may understand why this company enter a new market, why Amazon enter new lines of businesses. Uh, well, they enter new lines of businesses because at the end of the day, that's what they always wanted to be, to be a kind of department stores with their own private labels. And I think it's, um, it's very important to look at the history, the past, the present, and trying to understand the future of, of, of companies. And unfortunately, just to go back to the method, I think European and, and neo-Brandesians antitrust enforcement uh, look at the market as a picture, as a, a present day uh, situation and uh, see all the bad, um, the, the bad practices that they want to, to see on those, uh, on those, uh, on the, from those companies. Uh, this has been so much fun, Aurelian. Last question because I, I, Schumpeter really is worthy of a whole episode on his own, I suppose. But, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and I'm going to be very curious to see if you have an answer to this one. Um, you know, in addition to his views on creative destruction, you know, Schumpeter had some interesting thoughts on the relationship between capitalism and the intellectual class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically he said that capitalism creates the wealth that can support an idea class that is fundamentally hostile to and likely in the long run to destroy capitalism itself. Right. Um, so do you have thoughts on that aspect of his work? And do you think that if he were around today, he'd look at the neo-Brandeisians and see yeah. that as actually a, an instance of this phenomenon? Yeah. I think that's circled very well with the Me, We movement uh, uh, article that I, I, I wrote. I think Schumpeters looked at the, the difficulty of capitalism to evolve into a democratic, within democratic institutions. Why? Because the success, the high growth of small, of few rivals, of few disruptors, will create so many discontents 
that these discontent, these inefficient rivals, these uh, complaint, complainants will use democratic institutions to slow down, to stop disruptions, because disruptions create costs, create harm to inefficient rivals. So I think Schumpeter was very pessimistic of the way democratic institutions can accommodate with a high growth uh, uh, and innovate the innovation of capitalism, because he knew that many people um, and many rivals will always coalesce into powerful alliance so that they can stop the most innovative company and the, the, the greatest disruptors. And that is exactly what we see uh, today in the neo-Brandesians uh, case, where you see very powerful alliance being organized, emerging, so that they and traditional incumbents organizing themselves so that they can stop the disruptions of these digital big tech uh, companies who are the enemies of big tech companies most of the time is traditional incumbents in different sectors right in the banking sector in the supermarket sector in every media. traditional in the in the media well of course they're naturally uh, very powerful uh, so you see all these tra traditional industries being pow already powerful because they are historically here for many years if not decades or centuries in coalescing using the democratic institutions to slow down the the pace of innovation and therefore the growth of capitalism i think schumpeter foresaw that very well he saw i mean also because he has been minister uh, in austria and he was very very uh, pessimistic of politics uh, in, in back then in Austria and saw how regulation and politics worked in a daily basis. Uh, but more generally, he was very skeptical of the way uh, democracy can accommodate um, this high growth of companies. Also, he had, of course, some uh, concern about income inequality, right? The most innovative companies, the most efficient companies, of course, will create general higher growth and will generate more remunerations, which will not be available for the less efficient, for the sluggish companies. And these income inequalities will lead to some radical reforms, radicals uh, taking power so that they can do some income redistribution, of course, at the expense of innovation, the rate of, uh, of, of, of growth and all these, uh, all these factors. That's why he saw back then, during his, during his, his uh, between the two wars and after the Second World War, uh, that's why he saw, and that's why also he foresaw as a future of capitalism, that capitalism will never really let the most innovative company, the most disruptive companies to go uh, at full pace, uh, because the democratic institutions will always reduce them in order to have some social acceptability. Um, which is good and bad, right? Because you, of course, you cannot have innovation, you cannot have these dynamic uh, companies uh, without social acceptability. But we need to recognize that there's a trade-off here. There's a trade-off between the pace of innovation and um, the redistribution uh, objectives that democratic institutions may have. Uh, so he, he was very, um, very skeptical uh, about also the, 
it wasn't the name back then, but this kind of regulatory capture, uh, the way you can use agency administrative bodies in order to gain a uh, special interest. And, um, and yeah, I think it, it was very uh, pessimistic a view of uh, the relationship between capitalism and democracy, even though it was a democrat, of course, uh, but it was very skeptical of uh, the working of politics in Western countries. Well, Aurelian, uh, the largest corporation, I believe by market cap in the world right now had an ad campaign in which they said, think uh, different. Those of us who want to use proper grammar might say think differently. And you are certainly doing that in this area. And I appreciate your time. And I look forward to following your or continuing to follow your, uh, your work. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great uh, discussion. All right. Well, I'm Corbin Barthold. I've been joined also by uh, Andy Young. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.